0: welcome to excelling in christ the podcast that does not avoid the hard or tough questions of the day we gladly accept that straight and narrow is the way and we look to the map of god's word to guide us through those tough straits that we encounter from time to time today we open up a can of worms today we look at the once saved always saved discussion Now I have to tell you right up front, I don't have every answer to every possible scenario people may raise. I simply propose to point you back to the scriptures and encourage you to think for yourself using God's word as your guide. So while I don't have every answer for every possible endless mind-numbing, yes-but-what-if people can imagine and their imagination seems to never run out, I do know how to point you back to Scripture and encourage you to think for yourself and build on the Word of God. Let me be clear. I do not want you to build your faith on me or any other preacher or on some creative scenario or a clever turn of phrase or a yes but or a what if. I want you to build your faith on a solid book chapter and verse foundation you can flip to and see ink on the page. John twelve forty eight. Jesus said the words that I spoke will judge us in the last days and so that's where i'm pointing you not clever scenarios not clever yes buts and clever what ifs but a book chapter and verse foundation back to the word of god so let's dive in which camp do you fall into there are two basic choices here you can either be that it is impossible to lose your salvation or it is possible also known as the possibility of apostasy if you don't know which camp i'm in let me tell you clearly I am in the it is possible to fall away camp. I do believe in the possibility of apostasy or the possibility that you can lose your salvation. So how did I get into this camp? And given my backstory of being raised Southern Baptist and my granddad being a temporary Southern Baptist preacher, you may wonder all the more how I could have possibly arrived at this position. And the answer is really simple. I started reading the Bible for myself, cover to cover, over and over, thinking for myself. Sure, I could find preachers that would tell me anything I wanted to hear on either side of this issue. I could have gone preacher shopping. A lot of people do it. You may do it, I don't know, but my hunger was to practice the Christianity taught in the Bible. I wanted the same doctrine the disciples of the first century had. Not some later idea, not some modern invention. I wanted as much as it is humanly possible to build on that first century foundation. That's where I wanted to plant my feet. So I tried to approach this without any agenda but simply getting back to a book, chapter, and verse teaching of what the Christians of the first century understood. So if the Bible taught that my name could be blotted out of the book of life, then so be it. Then that was good. And if the Bible taught that my name can never, ever be blotted out of the book of life, no matter what sins I may commit, that's fine too. So my adventure began. And having been raised in the Southern Baptist Church beginning nine months before I was born, i had the basic familiarity with the bible thus i began my reading my thinking and of course questioning preachers on both sides of the issue and i could easily find that either side would assure me that i had the truth but i knew they were saying opposite things and i'm like you know something isn't adding up here one or the other may be right but they can't both be right so I knew about verses like the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, where Christ said he had all authority. And so that pointed me back to the scriptures. So I came to this once saved, always saved mindset. I had that mindset. So I, I was looking for verses that would challenge that position. I wanted to see how my camp would explain verses away, and then I wanted to evaluate all that for myself. I, I just wanted to get in there and look at the nitty gritty of it. I was definitely not happy taking somebody's word for it on either side of the issue. I wanted to discover for myself, with my own eyes turning pages in my Bible, Nowadays, I guess you'd be sliding screens in your Bible, but that's a-okay, nothing wrong with that. So, I knew about verses like Revelation 3, 15 and 16, where God told the lukewarm that if they didn't clean up their act, he would vomit them out of his mouth, and you can go back and read that with your own eyes, starting Revelation 3, I think it starts at verse 14, going down through verse 17 or 18. But when he said, I will vomit you out of my mouth, that didn't sound like an assurance of salvation to those Christians vomiting out did not sound like acceptance to me and i was told well yes gotta vomit them out but but he didn't say they were going to hell and that just didn't ring true to me it's sort of like saying you know, the blind lead the blind they both fall into the ditch but oh that ditch just happens to be inside the pearly gates in heaven so it really didn't matter anyway you know that just that doesn't add up and then i would read about the church of sardis and those christians they were dead christ said you have a name that you're alive but you are dead well again that didn't sound like assurance of salvation to me and then when I read on down to verse 5 and he told them they need to overcome and if they did overcome they would be clothed in white garments and he would not blot out their name from the book of life and I thought whoa wait a minute these people were in danger of having their name blotted out of the book of life if they didn't get their act together and of course I was assured that even though it looks like that's what Jesus is saying it's not what he really meant now I don't know about you but it looks to me that if Jesus wanted to ensure Christians entangled in sin, spiritually lukewarm and spiritually dead, that they were totally safe in their salvation, he sure could have used some language more assuring than vomiting them out and making a threat or reminding them that their names can be blotted out of the book of life. So I think, mm. And then I saw that very clear warning in Revelation twenty two nineteen, where he says, If anyone takes the away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and the things that are written in this book. That's Revelation 22, 19. And so now I have the Apostle John telling me, I get to messing with the book of Revelation there, and God will take my part from the book of life, from the Holy City, from the Tree of Life. And I'm like, hmm. And that really doesn't sound like an assurance of salvation, regardless of my behavior. Actually, it sounds like my behavior plays a pretty important role with my relationship with God and my eternal home. So, you know, you just sit around, you ponder those things, and you wonder, and you let them digest for a while. Don't rush through a subject as deep as this. I know that some teachers were saying that Christian race essentially ends at conversion and that once a person puts christ on in baptism once he is in the body of christ his eternity is locked in and can never ever ever be changed now i know that's a comforting idea that the race ends at conversion but i'm looking at passages like over there in matthew 25 and i was looking at the parable of the talents and i see that the lazy man who buried his talents was not okay so if the lazy man who buried his talents, Jesus said, cast him into outer darkness, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's specifically Matthew 25 and 30, then something's not adding up. How can preachers be telling people it's okay if you're lazy, it's okay if you bury your talents, God is not going to let you miss heaven and cause you any misery just because you buried your talents. And Jesus point blank says, if you bury your talents, you'll be cast into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. According to Jesus, bearing your talents is not going to be rewarded with eternal joy and peace. And so you, you ponder, you wonder like, well, what, what are people reading? I, I'm not quite getting it. And then I thought about 1 Corinthians nine twenty-seven. I like to think about Paul a lot because Paul said, imitate me as also imitate Christ in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. So I figure, hey, Paul's a good one to study, right? And Paul said, I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now folks, it takes a lot of acrobatics to get around that simple statement of Paul's concern. He thought it was possible for him to be disqualified. So as I read my Bible and I listen to what I had been raised in, and then I'm looking at ink on the page, I find myself not so confident of my upbringing in that particular regard, I found a lot of verses, such as Paul writing to the Christians in Rome, and he said to these Christians in Rome, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's Romans 8:13. And so I kept reading the scriptures, trying to understand the scriptures, but it really was not fortifying what I had been taught growing up as a Southern Baptist back in the 1960s. Of course, there's a lot of verses we could mention there, but the podcast doesn't have all day long. And so people come along and go, yeah, but, 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 but preacher, what about? And there's always a what about, a yes, but, and a what if. And there are always some other scriptures to bring into the discussion. And it should be a discussion. You shouldn't totally rely on one side or the other. You need to look at both sides of the argument. So there are passages that teachers during my upbringing relied on to basically annul or disarm any concerns we might have that we could possibly in some way lose our salvation or or fall away so if i'm going to be honest i've got to look at those passages and the one-the main one i would say was john ten twenty seven through twenty nine where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, they follow me. He said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who is given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And so, you know, in my upbringing, they'd go see there. That's a promise of eternal security. No matter what you do, no matter what sins you commit, you can never, ever lose your salvation. But what did Jesus really say? Go back and look at verse 27 really careful. Who did he give assurance to? In verse 27, he gave assurance to, very specifically, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. He gave assurance to those people who were listening to him and following him. And well, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think as long as you are listening to Jesus and you are following Jesus, you are as safe and secure in Christ as possible. The question of apostasy is not about those who are faithful and loyal to Christ. Of course, no one's gonna defeat God and cheat us out of our salvation. The question of apostasy is about those people that stop listening and stop following, those people that bury their talents, those people who become spiritually dead after they became Christians, like those in Revelation 3.1, or those who become spiritually lukewarm, like Revelation 3.15 and 16. When I look back and I read that passage closely, John 10.27-29, I find no assurance given to those who grow lukewarm, who stop listening, who forget their first love and go another direction, no longer following Jesus. Don't think... There's the assurance in that passage that some people like to say is there. Now, I think John's passage there fits really nice also with just a few chapters later in John 15. So you want John 10, 27. You want to read that passage through verse 29. And I want to come down to John 15. And you really want to look at all of verse 1 through 10. Now, we're not going to unpack all of that right now. But that's where Jesus said he's the true vine and his father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit... Now, notice where the branches are. They're already Christians. They're in Christ. But if they don't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more. So, again, God does not give assurance to those that stop listening, stop following, become unfruitful, or lukewarm. That's not what it says. In fact, on down in verse 10, John fifteen ten, he says, If you keep my commandments... You'll abide in my love. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, that sounds like this blessing is conditioned on keeping his commandments. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You can take that on down to John 15 and 14, or you go back to John 14, 15, where he says, You are my friend if you do whatever I command you. So again, I I saw no assurance in Scripture for people that don't listen and follow Jesus. I I don't think that vomit out is somehow figurative language assuring salvation. I think it's a warning. I think it's a threat that says, look, you get lukewarm, you get spiritually dead, you you become unfruitful, you better wake up or you're going to be in trouble. Now, I know there are some speakers out there that can put together some really persuasive arguments. I mean, they can put together a turn of phrases that make you go, wow. And i want to give you an example of one of those because if you come across it in your own study, you're gonna go, whoa, wait a minute. So this is what this speaker said. He writes, he didn't say I will never leave you as long as you are holy enough, good enough, faithful enough. He does not keep his promises based on your faith but because of his faith, not because you are good enough, but because he is good. And I tell you what, i got to say, wow, that's a pretty clever way to put that argument together, isn't it? But then I remembered another preacher who said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And now I'm in an odd place. Now I have to decide whether I want to follow this speaker that I picked up on the internet, who did put together a really clever phrase? Or do I want to follow Jesus in Matthew 7, 21, who tells me that those who enter the kingdom of God are those that do the will of God? Jesus doesn't put all the responsibility on God, according to Jesus, we share the responsibility. And if we don't do the will of God, we're in trouble. In fact, in verse 22, he said, Many say to me in that day. Didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many wonders in your name? And he'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity or lawlessness, depending on the translation you're using. So what I'm seeing is God made the way possible. God opened up the straight and narrow way for us to take to heaven. And now we're responsible to travel the straight and narrow way. And if you want to get into heaven, I'd follow Jesus. And Jesus quite clearly said, those that enter are those who do the will of the Father. Now all that other clever stuff, you can buy it if you want to, but I'm going to tell you, you need to follow Jesus. Get back to that book chapter and verse foundation. Put your finger on that page and read it word for word. Now we're really going to talk about grace for a moment because I want to understand grace in the same way that Paul in the early church understood grace. And I think this is really the core of the whole issue is that today there is a modern concept of grace that is not taught in the Bible or is not like the Bible presents grace. So Paul in his letters to the Romans referred to our obedience, us doing deeds and us being held accountable for our deeds over 15 times. This is interesting, because my friends that believe God's grace does it all, they rely very heavily on the book of Romans, and they quote passages out of the book of Romans. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute. What they're quoting is correct. I'm not arguing with their quotation, but I'm seeing Paul write the passage they're quoting, and then I'm seeing Paul write 15-plus other passages about our responsibility to be obedient to God. And so something's not adding up. Paul's idea of grace is clearly something different than the modern concept many of my friends hold. And incidentally, they are my friends. So in the book of Romans, Paul blends grace and obedience together in harmony. It is not a case of either or. But grace and obedience go together like a hand in a glove. This is the same for Jesus. Jesus can give us John three sixteen, for God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him, you know the verse. And Jesus can also give us John fourteen and fifteen, where he says, You're my friend, if You do whatever I command you. He can give us Luke 6, 46, where he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? He can give us Matthew 28 and 20, where he tells us in the Great Commission the apostles are supposed to teach disciples to observe all things whatsoever Jesus commanded. And we can just go on and on with examples of Jesus commanding us to obey. So the grace and faith that Jesus taught did not exclude our obedience. But the two rather work together in harmony, again, like a hand in a glove. That was the biblical concept two thousand years ago. So people that rely on this grace only concept or faith only, whatever you want to call it, you know, they they have a lot of trouble with like James 214 through 26. They find that passage challenging because James wrote, A man is justified by works and not faith alone. Now James didn't have any trouble writing that, did he? Because James' concept of God's grace and faith and works all blended together in perfect harmony. There was not a conflict in James' mind. My point is that their concept of grace did not exclude obedient surrender on our part, but rather it just was this beautiful hand and glove. But now today, on many of my friends have this idea, no 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 no, God's grace does everything. No, we do nothing. That, I'm not finding that in the Bible. When I read it cover to cover, I'm finding, yes, there's God's grace, and then there are our, our surrender, our obedience to that grace, and those two blend together. So one last example here, and then i, I got to bring this to a close because I know it gets kind of overwhelming. In Genesis 6, 8, it said, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So according to a lot of modern grace theology, Noah should have just sit down, done nothing, because grace was going to take care of everything however in the bible grace does not take care of literally everything what grace does in the bible is it reveals god's plan and so god's grace revealed the plan to noah how to build the ark and then noah got busy building the ark stocking the ark and managing the animals that were going to live with him on the ark there's the biblical idea of grace in a nutshell, I suppose, that I am advocating and saying that a lot of folks are missing. So we got to close. I, I, I know we've left a 1,001 yes, but, and what ifs unanswered, and that is totally okay. Not a problem with that. I stand with David, Psalms 119, 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What I'm trying to tell you is you do not have to answer every yes, but, and what if. We just have to follow the map of God's Word. And at the core of this once saved, always saved discussion is our understanding of how grace works, or should I say a disagreement about how grace works. So if you want to go deeper into that, instead of pursuing all the clever what if and yes but rebuttals, and there aren't but a thousand of them, I want you to dive into Scripture, and simply study what Scripture reveals about grace and how grace is revealed in the Old and the New Testament, and just think for yourself and and contemplate how grace works in the Bible. And then I think you will see why Paul had no problem, none at all, writing directly about the importance of grace and at the same time directly writing about the importance of obedience in our deeds over 15 times in the book of Romans itself. If you can start to grasp the mind of Paul, then you're going to understand that first century concept of grace. In Paul's mind, the two weren't at odds. They went together like a hand in a glove. So, I know this is just the tip of the iceberg, and I really think this is a good place to bring this podcast to a close. So, I thank you for listening invite you to share your questions and comments. I invite you to work with me by simply sharing this wherever you do your social media. And as always, I hope you have a great day.